This is Make Saints. I'm Drew Downs. twelfth episode of the Make Saints podcast, I thought I'd do something clever and talk about twelve. And when I saw that I could drop it right after the twelfth day of Christmas, well, I couldn't pass up that opportunity. But of course that isn't the twelve I have in mind. I'm thinking of the twelve, as in the twelve followers of Jesus. Okay, before you skip out, let me say this. The fact that the Bible doesn't agree on who those 12 people were is pretty fantastic and not even the smallest problem because that was the natural starting place. I'm supposed to tell you who these 12 dudes were and what they believed, yada yada, skippity doo and boom, we'd be at today, right? But no. Who are the 12? So, of course, there's Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, right? That's four. Then Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, another Simon, Judas Iscariot, and either Thaddeus or a second Judas, who is the son of a James, since there are two. And honestly, there is no real reason to know these names, right? The gospel writers only gave half of them speaking roles, right? Peter, we know, what with the Messiah comment and Jesus calling him Satan and denials, right? James and John make some bold statements about riding and dying with him and join Jesus for the transfiguration, right? Andrew, Thomas, and Philip get minor roles too, but only in John. The only other one to get a speaking part is Judas Iscariot. So, what, seven of the twelve? And three of those only get that speaking part in that one gospel. So, let's forgive ourselves for needing a cheat sheet to keep track of the supporting cast. What are the twelve? Right, That's the better question. The most obvious answer is that they are the closest followers of Jesus, which given how Peter, James, and John seem to amount to an inner circle, it makes the lot of them something like the wider inner circle. They are referred throughout the Gospels as the twelve disciples and apostles, which makes it hard to figure out exactly what their particular role is. Now, the church often refers to the 12 as the disciples, right? So we invite kids to memorize the names of the disciples. But in the Bible, even that isn't consistent, particularly in Luke, in which there is the 12 and the disciples, which is an even bigger group. So the 12 are counted as within the disciples, like a subset. I'll tell you how my brain exploded when I finally read the Gospel of Luke straight through and came to chapter 9, right? There, Jesus calls his 12 closest followers to him, calls them apostles, and has them do the very healing he was just doing, right? So they go out, 
do it and come back and are like, holy cats, we could actually do it. But then Jesus turns around in chapter 10 and sends the disciples out, all 70 of them, to do what those 12 just did. I was like, I thought there were 12. My Sunday school teacher expected me to remember the names of all 12 disciples, and now you're telling me there are 70? What the heck, man? But that isn't everything. I was just as blown away by the idea that the disciples were called apostles while Jesus was still alive and that they could do what Jesus could do. I'd heard this stuff in church all my life, and yet this was the first time I'd really heard it. Why the Twelve? Well, don't really know. And honestly, way above our pay grade. Tradition says it's connected to the Twelve Tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples. Okay, I guess. Does that move you? Probably not. What's more interesting is that this was consistent among all the Gospels. There's a lot of variants about the disciples in general, but they all have 12 as the inner circle. Each Gospel does, and that itself seems significant. Now let's talk about Judas. So there are 12 followers among the disciples that get this special designation in all the Gospels. They are known as the 12. And then one of them betrays them all. In the Gospel we attribute to Mark, the author last refers to the 12 in 1443, right? chapter 14, when it says, Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It's almost like this is the end of the team. right? From then on, the reference to 12 disappears. Now, Matthew, Judas betrays them, but the author doesn't just drop it. Matthew has Judas try to return the bribe and then kill himself. Then he refers to the remaining disciples as the 11. Luke's author dispatches with Judas with less finality, and like Matthew, refers to the group as the 11. Luke, unlike the other Gospels, though, takes the time in a second Gospel, the Acts of the Apostles, to replace Judas so the team can be at full strength again. So these are all very subtle differences, right? Three different takes in these three different Gospels. Of course, the fourth Gospel, John, would take a very different approach. They remain the Twelve. Even after Judas betrays them, they are still the Twelve, right? Apparently, it's the team name. It's like the Big Ten. It's been a long time since the Big Ten had ten teams. It makes sense, and it's so simple. Why wouldn't they still be the Twelve? But this subtlety is also quite telling. Just like Mark, Matthew, and Luke, John has Judas betray Jesus in the garden. It's a big moment. Lots of tension. Armies and swords and the Julius Caesar at two Brute vibes are radiating. And just like the others, he stops referring to the team at all. Until after the crucifixion and resurrection, 
when Jesus shows up. In chapter 20, verse 24, it reads, But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. That's it. That's the only other reference to the twelve. Again, subtle. Thomas was missing. He wasn't in the upper room. He was one of the twelve. And he wasn't there. I mean, guess who else we assume isn't there? Isn't it curious, though, John referring to the twelve here, noting that one of them was missing, as if the other eleven were there? Now, it doesn't say Judas was there, but it also doesn't say he wasn't. Now, John doesn't deal with Judas with any of the finality that Matthew and Luke do, nor does it give anything close to the suggestion that Judas actually isn't in the room with them. The evangelist keeps referring to Judas as a betrayer throughout the whole book. And he begins chapter 18 with three successive references to Judas, right? Judas who betrayed him. Then Judas brought a detachment of soldiers. Then a line later, Judas who betrayed him, right? Naming him betrayer, giving his action, then calling him betrayer again, right? And right then, Jesus is brought before the high priest and then Pilate, and interspersed in this sequence is Peter denying Jesus three times. Both Judas and Peter are messing up. In the end, the literal end of the book, we only see one reconcile with Jesus. Now, you might not like my hot take on Judas. That's fair. I'm not going to hang my theological hat on such foolish certainty. But what is striking about the Gospel of John is how much this whole last arc is built around reconciliation. And it is so unbelievably striking that a story so rich with that movement of restoration, reconciliation, and transformation would simply leave this unresolved. I mean, for Pete's sake, well, Thomas's sake, actually, that guy gets a special visit from Jesus because he missed the first one. On the other hand, killing Judas off, casting him out, or kicking him off the team in a punitive response Right? That is anathema to, his, to this ending. Right? It has to at least be considered possible that Judas could be there. But there's one wrinkle. Jesus has earlier said that there's only one way to not be on the team, and that's to quit. Right? The roster is open to anyone. And if you're on it, then you're on the team. Right? 
The only way you're not on the team is if you choose to not be on the team. I suspect John doesn't resolve the Judas mess because the disciples couldn't resolve it themselves. It is most likely that he quit the team, betrayed them because he was scared and felt like he couldn't go back. That makes the most sense. But I think the confusion of what to make of the Twelve serves to mess with our expectations in a good way. How we so often seek to punish the traitors with bloodthirsty vengeance when the heart of the story is reconciliation. And yet, reconciliation can only happen when it is sought by both parties. John's Gospel ends with Jesus' reconciliation with Peter. Three times Jesus asks if he loves him, and three times Peter says, yes. Each one walks back a denial. Now, we don't get to read of Judas's redemption, but we do get to reconcile with our neighbors. How we do that? I mean, that's the work. And the hardest part, it's on both of us to do it. Before I go, I have a few things I want to share with you. First, I want to wish you health, growth, and blessings in the new year. We have another chance at a clean slate. Second, if you're looking for a way to make a direct impact in your community, reach out to a local homeless ministry. The national point-in-time count to measure the homeless population in your community takes place every January. This is a great time to get someone a coat, gloves, or socks while helping the count succeed. We help out locally every year, and it is a boost to both the people in need and the agencies who serve the community. Now, also remember that I'm taking a little more time off to get through the month of January, but I will be back in February with more episodes of Make Saints. It's a blast making this show for you, and I hope you enjoy it. I also want to make sure that you keep enjoying it. So if there's something you want me to cover or some grand idea you want me to explore, just reach out. Links are at my website. That means check out drewdowns.net for new articles. Sign up for the new newsletter coming out soon, I promise. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite player and leave a five-star review. Be well, and I'll see you in just a few weeks.